Hey, tonight we're going to be looking or starting in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. I'm going to kind of jump right in. So if you would just follow along as I read the first few verses, then we'll come back and, uh, and we'll talk about it. So Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, From strangers. And Jesus said to him, And the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Shortly after Jesus and the disciples had come to Capernaum, which was Peter's hometown, and even possibly maybe just as they entered the city there, it's not a very big place, those men, those people who collected the temple tax, they singled out Peter and they wanted the money. Why did they go to Peter? Well, perhaps it was because Capernaum was his hometown, or perhaps it was because he was known as the leader of the disciples, number one guy up underneath of Jesus. Perhaps that could be it. And he was, they were collecting this tax from him, this temple tax. The temple tax was a Roman government-approved tax that was charged to help maintain the temple in Jerusalem. Notice they sent people all the way from Jerusalem to Capernaum. That's about an hour's drive in today's world. For them, it was probably a two to three day walk, about 60 miles or so, give or take a few. They sent them all the way there to collect it. This temple tax was usually collected at the time of Passover. And although they were supposed to come to Jerusalem for Passover, a lot of people couldn't make it for whatever reasons. So they wanted to make sure you didn't miss the opportunity to pay your tax. So they sent people out to collect it from you. We'll go to you instead of you coming to us. That way, if you come to us, maybe you'll pay twice. If not, we're going to at least get our, our share of it of what it was. This was always collected around the time of Passover. So about a month before, they would send these guys out to collect this tax. It was likely these men from the temple that were sent out in this area of Capernaum. Now, when the tabernacle, going back to old Israel, when they were in the desert, in the wilderness wandering, when the tabernacle was built, that's when this temple tax was instituted. God provided for its maintenance by charging every man over the age of 20 one half shekel per year. And when the temple in Jerusalem replaced the tabernacle, the assessment continued, although it was temporarily decreased to about a third of a shekel by Nehemiah, because when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, they didn't have very much money, but they still gave to support the temple. After, this is kind of interesting, I thought, after Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by Titus Vespasian in 70 AD, he thought it would be a good idea to keep collecting the tax. And he did. Although the, although the Jewish people were without a land, he collected the tax and he gave it to the pagan gods to support their temple. So these tax collectors, they come to Peter and they say, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Simply by the way this is worded, I suspect there's an underlying motive there. I suspect they've been instructed to challenge Jesus on this issue. I suspect the Jewish leader said, hey, listen, when you get to Capernaum, if you happen to run into Jesus, go find the number one guy, Peter, or even ask him himself. Perhaps they were too afraid to approach Jesus himself. 
because they knew and they'd heard of what he had done and the things that he'd done. Although he'd never done anything bad, he'd only helped people. They approached Peter. And they phrased it in a way where, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? I can't believe, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter simply replies, yes. Of course we pay the temple tax. Of course, in other words, yeah, of course we pay the temple tax. Now don't blame Peter for this. I know Jesus sort of corrects him afterwards, but after all, Jesus had told him not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. He was supposed to, don't, don't tell anybody the Mount of Transfiguration. Don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah yet. But Peter says, yes, of course we pay the temple tax, and goes inside, and when he had come into the house, it says Jesus anticipated him. So before Peter could say a word, before he could say, hey, who were those guys you were talking to out there? Jesus anticipated what had happened, and he asked him a question. Isn't it amazing how well Jesus knows what's going on? He knows what, he wasn't outside. He heard what was going on. The Holy Spirit revealed to him what was taking place. He asked Peter a question. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from their strangers? In other words, this is a rhetorical question. The answer seems to be obvious. Why would a father collect tax money from his own son? It would be taking it from himself in a sense. If he's supporting the son, he taxes his son, he's taking, he's taxing his own money. That would make no sense whatsoever. Peter rightly answers, he says, from strangers. Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. In that day, the ruler's families, the whole family was exempt from paying taxes. From paying taxes. Now, if Jesus had ended the lesson right there, the sons are free, don't have to pay taxes. If he had stopped right there, we as Christians might be able to argue that we don't need to pay taxes. Well, we know that he didn't stop right there. We know that he kept going. He continued to on. He's going to teach the disciples and us. Look what he says there in verse 27. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you've opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money Take that and give it to them for me and you. Jesus told Peter the tax was to be paid. Not only was it to be paid in full, but it was to be paid willingly and without argument. Why? So we don't offend them. He'd already established he wasn't required to, take, to pay the tax because he's the Messiah. Why should he have to pay a temple tax when he's the Messiah that's come to the nation of Israel? But he instructed Peter to do something that he wasn't required to do just so he wouldn't offend them. Think about the implications here. If the Son of God claimed no exemption for himself in paying taxes to the temple, to the den of thieves run by the wicked false teachers and the leaders of Israel, because that's who was running the temple, how much less can his followers, that's us, claim exemption for ourselves? Of course we should pay taxes. Of course we should pay what we're owed. Of course we should do those things. If he, the Son of Man, was concerned about not offending unbelievers over the issue shouldn't we be concerned about who we offend and the reason that we offend them by how much more should we have that same exact concern you see evidently there's some battles that are not worth fighting for fighting over not every cause is worth the cost so to speak and not every hill is worth dying on sometimes you do it you give in you follow what they ask just so you don't offend them in other words, we don't always have to be right. Think about that. How far will you go to be right? 
How many people will you offend, will you step on, will you put down, will you declare how, how right you are, how wrong they are, and all you've done is offend someone? He was concerned about offending an unbeliever. Think about how we offend people in the church. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about how we offend our families, our husbands, our wives, our brothers and sisters. Do you see the picture of Jesus here? He's concerned about unoffending people who don't believe in him. We too should be concerned about who we offend. Miraculously, Jesus provided the tax money in the mouth of the fish. Peter, go on down to the shore there of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum sits right on the Sea of Galilee. Go on down there. And when we go there, we have a, there's a nice little beach there outside of Capernaum. You can sit there and have a Bible study and we do that. And you could just throw in a line, and I could just imagine Peter walking down. Now, Peter didn't usually catch fish with a, a fishing pole. He usually caught them in a net. He went out on a boat. He was a professional fisherman. This wasn't a hobby for him. Go throw in a line, Peter, and when you catch a fish, you pull it up and out, come, and you open its mouth, and there you'll find enough money. You'll find a full shekel, because it was a half shekel each. You'll, you'll find a full shekel, one for, part for me and part for you. Now, my mind says, how did Jesus do that? Did some guy across the lake throw in a shekel and the fish ate it, swam over there at the right time, bit the hook, Peter pulled it up and then opened his mouth or did he just make it miraculously appear? We don't know the answer to that, but it's kind of fun to speculate. You can pick and choose which one you think happened. But what we do know is when Peter caught the fish, he opened it up and there was a coin in the fish's mouth. Miraculous, unbelievable. This miracle reinforced the point that Jesus was the son of God. He reminded him, listen, I am the Son of God. As a matter of fact, I want to show you one more time in one other way. Go cast a line in and go catch a fish, and you're going to find that tax that you promised to pay, the money, because we don't really have it. I'm, you're going to go find it in that fish's mouth. Not only am I going to provide it for you, I'm going to provide it miraculously for you. Don't ever underestimate what God can do. Don't, don't ever think that he can't provide. The miracle reinforced the point that he was the Son of God, and he had the right to refuse to pay the tax. He didn't have to pay it. He wasn't required. But he chose not to do so, so he wouldn't offend them. But it also, shows, it also shows us that sometimes, sometimes in our life, sometimes in your week, in your day, it might be tomorrow, you might have the right to do something or even refuse to do something. But in making that decision, you should be concerned. How is it going to affect the other person? Am I going to offend them? Or is this the thing that's going to separate us? Or can I consider giving in and sharing the gospel in a different way. You see, that's what he was concerned about. Ultimately, the Lord provided. But remember, he was even concerned with offending the unbeliever there. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Hey, Jesus, can you imagine this? Hey, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be the greatest? Who, who is it, Jesus? You see, Mark and Luke tell us that this question stems from an argument they were having among themselves. Just a bunch of guys talking about who's the best. Things haven't changed much over the years. You get a group of guys together, they're going to talk about these things. No, no, I'm better than you. No, I can do that better than you. you somebody brings something up, the conversation will quickly go to who's the best at something. Who's the best? That's what they're talking about. Perhaps some of them were jealous of Peter. Maybe Peter's kind of taken that number one role. After all, he's kind of the spokesman for the group. Just like they didn't really understand what Jesus was teaching about when it comes to humility, 
they surely didn't understand Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven. They missed it completely. They didn't understand. After all, hadn't he just told them he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be ro- and ro- and rise again on the third day? He just told them he was going to go there, he was going to be betrayed, he was going to be, he was gonna be uh, beaten and crucified. And they're worrying about arguing about who's the best. Like all of us, the disciples needed many lessons in humility. They needed to learn humility. And here Jesus is going to use a child as an illustration. Look at verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. They ask the question, Jesus, who's the greatest? Now, I, I picture in my mind, Jesus is kind of, there's going to be a little drama in this. I picture as they're standing around in a group, Jesus walks around each one of them, looks at them, looks up and down at them like, might be you. Goes to the next one, looks down, no, nah, not you. I picture he's walk, looking, kind of eyeing, you know, looking over each one of them. And all of a sudden, I picture him sitting down and calling a little child over to him. And here comes the child running over to him. He looks at each one of them, he calls for the child, and the child comes running. The Greek word for child here probably refers to a toddler, probably a very young child. Jesus called, and the child came. This obedience is the first step in being childlike. When Jesus calls, you have to come. Come on over here, whatever the little boy's or girl's name was, whatever, however he addressed them, come on over. And the child responded with obedience. The child came over. But it also shows us that Jesus was the type of guy, or the type of man, rather, that children weren't afraid of. You ever seen those guys that children just run? I mean, they, I mean, won't let go of mom's leg. I mean, just like, I'm not going near him. That wasn't the case here. Jesus, apparently in his appearance, apparently in his demeanor, apparently in the way he carried himself, a child was okay coming to him. There was nothing fearful about him. There was nothing intimidating about him. He was just, he was, he was, he was, he was just, the child would certainly come talk to him and come sit on his lap and come interact with him. I've known people where children are scared to death of them. And here we read, children would come to him. The child just came to him. Now it's important for us to know that in that day, children were regarded more as property than people. They were considered, uh, they weren't really considered individuals yet, and it was understood that they were to be seen and not heard. They were just something that underneath their parents' control. And Jesus tells his disciples that they need to be converted, he said. You guys got to be converted to be like this child. And this implies there needs to be a change that takes place in them. You need to be, we would call it today, born again. There needs to be something in, there, in you that changes. But Jesus also is speaking of this childlike humility. He said, whoever humbles himself will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now that was just the opposite of what the disciples were doing. They were arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus just said, whoever humbles himself. Whoever humbles himself will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility. It's a word that we have a hard time putting our finger on what it means. It's described as this. It's that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. The moment you think you're humble, you forget it's gone. You're not. You're not, you're not there anymore. Perhaps the best definition is this. True, hum, true humility is not thinking meanly of oneself. It's simply not thinking of oneself at all. 
It's where you put other people before you. Where, where other, someone else's, um, their, their problems, their concerns, they come before yours. That's difficult sometimes, isn't it? Because who's always on your mind? I'm always on my mind, right? Who's always on your mind? You're always on your mind. You want to make sure you've got everything you need first. And then if you've got everything you need, then you'll help everybody else out. Let's get myself situated first. That's not humility. Humility is just the opposite. I'm, I'm going to make sure that you're okay. I'm going to make sure that you have what you need. And I'm going to trust the Lord will provide what I need. Jesus had just told them about his suffering and his death. And they were thinking only of themselves. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? I want to be number one, numero uno. Was that humility? No, that was pride screaming out. They're having a competition. What position will I have in the kingdom, Jesus? They were so absorbed with this line of thought, they actually began to argue with one another over it. It's the opposite of humility. Humility would say, it's okay, you go ahead, go ahead, Peter, you be number one. Go ahead, John, you do it. Warren Wearsby defined true humility as this, and I kind of liked it. He said, knowing yourself, accepting yourself, and being yourself, your best self, to the glory of God. It means avoiding two extremes, thinking less of yourself than you ought to, or thinking more of yourself than you ought to. The truly humble person does not deny the gifts God has given him, but uses them to glorify God. So it's the idea is, I don't want to think too highly of myself, but on the other side, I can have someone who thinks too lowly of themselves. You know, one person can be pride, prideful and arrogant, and yes, that's, that's not humility, but also the person who thinks that they can't do anything, that they're the worst and they're terrible, that's not humility either. I think you find that hum, the balance of humility is there when I'm just simply serving the Lord and doing what God calls me to do. I'm not interested in personal gain. I'm not interested in self. I'm interested in helping others. I'm interested in walking in obedience to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, children do not try to be humble. No, there's no children, no child walking around trying to be humble. But they are so. They don't have a, there's no status rank in children. They don't think, well, this, you came from a wealthier family than I did. They don't know any of that. They don't even know the difference between a clean house and a dirty house. They just, they just know their children. They're here to play and they want to have a good time. They know very little. Children are, do not try to be humble, but they are so. And the same is the case with truly gracious and humble people. But he also said this, the imitation of humility is sickening. You can't fake it, can you? You can fake like I'm humble. You can pretend to be humble, but you know what? Everybody knows that you're faking. When you see someone that's truly humble, you, you understand they're truly humble. It, there, there's, no, there's no question about it. And when you see someone who's faking it, because he went on to say the imitation of humility is sickening, but the reality is attractive. The reality is attractive. A little child makes no claims of worthiness or greatness. A toddler we're talking about. He's, he or she simply submits to the care of her parents and the others who love them. Relying on them for what? All their needs. All that they need, the children rely on their parents. All of it. It's not till they get bigger that they say they want to be part of another family. When they're little toddlers, they love you. Your mom and dad, you're the best. Once they get a little bigger and they see their friends, well, I want a parent like that. Well, go ahead. <laughs> a little child is simple. They're dependent. They're helpless. They're unpretentious. And they're even unambitious. Children are not sinless. Don't misunderstand me. They're not naturally unselfish. They display their fallen nature from a very, very young age. 
but they are nevertheless naive and unassuming, trusting of others and without ambition of grandeur or greatness. You ever notice the way a child trusts? We have to teach our kids not to talk to strangers. Why? Because they would talk to anybody. They have no, they have, they cannot look at somebody and go, that, that person might hurt me. That person, they, they, they look like they're mean. They have no way of judging that person. We have to tell them, don't talk to strangers, don't take candy from strangers, don't get in the car with anybody. We have to train them to do these things. Naturally, they're not that way. That's what Jesus is pointing to. As Christians, we must not only have the faith and the humility of a little child, but we must also receive God's children and seek to minister to them. In other words, as Christians, we're called to have this kind of humility. That's what he's saying. We, we need to be careful how we look at people. We need to be careful what we think of people. And we're also called to minister to these children. And since the nature of Jesus is like one of these children, how we treat those who are humble like children will show us what we truly think of Jesus' nature. What do we really think of him? Jesus makes it clear. You rise higher in his kingdom as you lower yourself. You rise higher as you go lower. The apostles, they were on a completely different path. They're, they they want to be the greatest. He says, you want to be the greatest? Be the least. The first will be last and the last will be first. You want to be, you want to be popular? You want to be big? You want to be great in the kingdom? Then be a servant. Be a lowly servant. Be one who puts other people first. Be, be one who always thinking of others. In these coming verses, Jesus warns of leading the little ones, as he calls them, astray. Look at verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses or stumbling blocks. For offenses, stumbling blocks, must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Jesus takes it seriously when someone causes one of his little ones to sin. The term, little ones. Your mind thinks children. Mine mind does too, naturally. But he's not referring to little children there. He's referring to Christians. He's referring to those people who have humbled themselves like little children just before the Lord. Just like he described. They humbled themselves as children. These are the followers of Christ. We are the little ones if you're a follower of Christ. It's a wicked thing to sin. It's even greater, it's even, it's even a greater thing to lead others into sin, but leading one of these little ones, leading one of these followers of Christ, those who have humbled themselves before Christ into sin, he's saying it's far worse. He says it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was drowned. Don't mess with the Lord's kids. You ever watch Mama Bear when someone messes with one of her kids? Can you imagine the way the Lord feels when someone messes with one of his kids? The millstone refers to a large, round, and heavy stone. It's the stone that the donkey would pull. It was on a big pole, and it would roll around a trough, and then they would put grain in the trough, and it would crush up the grain. It's a big, sometimes it would weigh several hundred pounds. It's a, it's a large stone there. It wasn't just a small stone. The Romans would sometimes practice this form of execution. If they were near water, they would tie a heavy stone around a criminal's neck and drop him overboard. To the Jews, this was unthinkable. It was, it, was, it was atrocious. But Jesus says, this would be a better death for you than if you're taking my little ones and you're leading them astray. 
You're taking my believers, my followers. The disciples had just had an argument about who's the greatest. No doubt, everybody got a little heated. Everybody's anger probably arose a little bit. I can imagine them saying why they should be the greatest. This is why Peter should be the greatest. This is why John should be the greatest. I'm sure they went back and forth. And in doing so, they were sinning. They were becoming prideful and boasting. But also because they were inciting each other to envy and to jealousy and to anger. The group of guys standing around, the 12 that Jesus picked to start the church, to change all of history, are having an argument of who's going to be the best. Now, I'm glad they matured past that, aren't you? And they did, don't forget that. But here at this moment, I like to see it, I love the way the Bible shows us the truth of people, and it shows their true heart, because we have a tendency to idolize the people, and then when you read the scriptures, you realize, they're just like me. They make mistakes just like me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the redemption of the blood of Jesus Christ that allowed them to accomplish what they accomplished. There's nothing special in them. They are ordinary people that God did extraordinary things with. And he can do the same thing with people today. It's just one guy who says, I'll give you my life, Lord. And it's amazing how they did it. Now, I think of this verse, millstones and little children. Certainly, I think of it when I hear about people uh, hurting children, a pedophile, a drug dealer, or a cult member. But I think it goes beyond that. What about an educator who tries to attack a child's faith? Woe to the college professor who tries to rattle a student's faith with, an, with atheistic propaganda. Woe to the movie producer or the music promoter who wants to corrupt our children. Woe to the TV preacher or the pastor who misquotes scripture for his own personal gain who deceives the children of God, the little ones, and he leads them into believing things that aren't true. You know, a fallen world will inevitably be a wicked place. But woe to the people in this wicked world who seek to spread its perversion. God's judgment is certain, and it will be severe. And there are people that are trying to deceive us as believers every day. Don't you know that to be true? If you, if you don't think that's true, get on YouTube. And start watching what some of the people say about Christianity against those, those that are against Christianity. Just listen to what they say. Now, I, I get so mad when I do that. Sometimes. I, I want to talk to them. I want to tell them the truth because they, they twist the truth. They, make, they, don't, they don't make sense. But they're there. They're trying to shatter your faith. I'll never forget when I came up here to plant Calvary Chapel. There's a whole group of people that think Calvary Chapel is the worst place ever. And you can get on the internet and find all kinds of bad things about Calvary Chapel. And I started reading all this bad stuff. And I'm like, man... All these bad things. Maybe I shouldn't plan a Calvary Chapel. Maybe I should like make up my own thing or something. You know, all, these, all this stuff. And then you realize that is such a small percentage. That is some disgruntled handful of people. Because on the backside of that, there is thousands of people that have been blessed by Calvary Chapel. Maybe, maybe hundreds of thousands. I don't know. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And it came back to this. God just whispers in my heart, what did I call you to do? You called me to plant a Calvary Chapel. Then go do what I called you to do. Quit worrying about what the internet says. Quit worrying about what everybody says that's not true. Because you get so upset by it. But woe to those people who are leading the little ones astray. Now Jesus instructs the disciples on what to do with those things that are in their life. They're already there that cause them to stumble. He says in verse 8, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. 
and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Some people have thought that the Lord is speaking literally here. I don't believe that's the case. I would encourage no one to cut off their hands or pluck out their eyes. I think it's quite obvious the Lord is speaking figuratively. And here's why. Because no part of our physical body causes you to sin. If you think your hand is causing you to sin and you go home tonight and you cut it off and I'm not asking you to, you know what that's going to leave you with? One more hand. You know what you're going to do with that other hand? The same thing you did with the other hand. And if you pull out your eye, you're going to be a one-eyed sinner instead of a two-eyed sinner. Okay? Well, if he's not saying that, Rob, what's he saying? The point is, we must do whatever is necessary. We must do whatever is necessary, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful or expensive to keep yourself from sinning or from causing others to sin. Nothing is worth keeping if it leads you into sin. We need to be drastic when our, in our, in our, this needs to be, you know, sin is serious and we need to take serious measures and steps to keep us from it. If there's any habit or situation or relationship or anything else that causes you to stumble, Jesus is basically saying it should be permanently forsaken. Just like if you were to cut off your hand, it's gone. You can't sew it back on. Now I realize today we have plastic surgery and someone, yes, you can. Back then they couldn't. If you poked out your eye, it wasn't coming back. It doesn't grow back. He's saying the measures need to be drastic. Great danger often requires drastic measures. That's what he's talking about. Listen, if your smartphone causes you to sin, throw it away and get a dumb phone. It'll still make phone calls. It'll still do it for you. If Facebook tempts you in any way, if you're tempted to look up your old boyfriend or your old girlfriend or you're tempted to look at somebody else's life and wish that you had it, if it's a temptation for you in any way, get rid of it. You'll be fine. We survived for years without social media. It'll be okay. If you're married and there's a person at your workplace that you're starting to build a relationship with and you're going down the wrong road, can I tell you you need to quit? Quit your job. Go find another one take it serious, get away, get a transfer, do something, take drastic measures to protect your, your marriage. It's something that you need to take serious. If shopping causes you to sin, stay out of the mall. Whatever it is. I mean, we laugh at things like that, but all of those things. The truth is, there's, all of us have a temptation. There's something that draws all of us, whether it be acceptance, whether it be, I want to see how many likes my picture got on Facebook. If you're drawn to that, you might need to say goodbye to Facebook. You might need to say goodbye to social media if your life is revolving around it. If the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is something other than say good morning to the Lord and have a cup of coffee and open up your Bible, if you've got to get in your Facebook account, see how many people liked or didn't like something overnight, there's a problem there. And we live in a culture where we have to live up and keep up with the Joneses sometimes. If that's a problem for you, take whatever steps necessary to keep you from sinning. In other words, what he's saying here, what he's saying is, is take it seriously. Don't just take it lightly because it's going to draw you away from me. It's going to lead you away from the Lord and you can't just let it, let it go. It's not, it's not going to go. It's not just going to go away. He continues there in verse 10. He says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that 
which is lost. Remember, little ones does not refer to physical children, but to Christians. It can refer to physical children as well. But it's those who believe in Jesus Christ. To despise someone. Do not despise one of these little ones. To despise someone is to look down on him or her as inferior and not worth consideration or care. It is to disdain a person and treat him or her with contempt as being worthless. To despise one of these little ones is to treat one of God's own precious and beloved children, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, with disdain and contempt. To treat them poorly. Well, how can we despise other Christians? What does that look like? We despise one another when we flaunt our liberty before the weaker believers, causing them to go against their conscience or to overreact and fall deeper into legalism. When you use your Christian liberty and it causes someone else to stumble, you're despising them. You're saying, I don't care about you. I'm going to do what I want to do because I can do it. If you don't understand it, that's your problem. Christians despise one another when we show partiality. We show favoritism. God, God loves and cares for his children equally. He doesn't show partiality, yet we do. We despise other Christians when we, when we withhold help from those in need. If someone truly has a need, and we, dis- and we have the ability to meet that need, and we choose not to meet that need, we're despising them. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about needs, the basic needs of life. I'm talking about a place to live, food to eat, the basic things that we need. Sometimes we can't help, and that's okay. That's all right. That's, that's, not, that's not despising someone. I, 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 I thought about this. I'm like, what would be an example of this? And, you know, from, I, I shared with you guys on Sunday about Star. Who, we're help, who, who we've been praying for for years, she needs our financial help now as a church, so we're helping her. If we were to say to her, we've been praying for you for four years, now that you're free from the country that you came from, and now that you're living in a free country, sorry, you're on your own. That would be despising her. She has a need, and we have the ability to meet it, and we're not meeting it. That's, that's a, I mean, she, she, you know, that, that's a big deal. It's not like she you know, just has some minor need that popped up. We despise other believers when we take advantage of them for personal gain. If you're using the church to grow your business, to build your bank account, you're despising fellow Christians. The church is for fellowship and for worship. That's what it's for. It's not to build a business, not to grow a bank account. It's not to network and meet people. You know, I, I can, I, I've told stories. I've had friends of mine that were in business. They refused to carry business cards in church. For that reason, they never wanted to be a place where they could increase their business. They never wanted to be a place where they just made connections and, and you know, we're, we're, we go to the same church, therefore you'll do business with me. Certainly that would happen if you can write my phone number down if you want it, and if it works out great. If not, it's fine. No pressure that way. On the other hand, I know people, I, and I'm, I'm being perfectly honest, I know people. I've said to them, why do you go to that church? Oh, it's good for my business. It's a big church, lots of people there. They know who I am. I know who they are. I give out my car. They, 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 they're what helps pay my bills. That's why you go to a church? That's, that's it? Because of, of your business? Seriously? Unfortunately, that happens in many cases. It's a business decision, not a, not a godly decision. We despise other believers when we make fun of their physical appearance. We laugh at them, even behind their back, even when they don't know it. We can laugh at them, make fun of them. That's despising them. That's what he's saying. Don't do. We shouldn't be we shouldn't despise other believers. Why did it? Why, why not? Look what it says. Because of, I like this, they're angels. They're angels. Now this is one of those areas that we get the idea of a guardian angel from. 
But neither this text or any other teaches that the believer has his or her own personal guardian angels. Although people in that day believed it, and there are still people today that believe that you have a guardian, they have a guardian angel. The Bible doesn't teach that, I just want you to know. The writer of Hebrews explains that the holy elect angels, and he says this, they're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So there are angels that are sent by God to minister to believers. Their purpose is to serve God by attending the needs or the care of God's people. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? You have an angel. If you need something, God can dispatch an angel to you to help you out with that. Now, you don't have a guardian angel. The scripture doesn't teach that. But there's an angel that well, he can send if you, need, if you need help. To serve God attends the care of his people. But remember, it's at God's discretion. You can't tell your angel. You can't tell the angels what to do. These angels, we're told here, they live in the very presence of God. Can you imagine living in the very presence of God? They wait attentively for his commands to serve the people he loves. It says there, they always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Picture that. The holy angels, never taking their eyes off God. They don't want to miss some direction from him, some order. Lord, what do you want us to do? Here we are, gathered, just waiting to be dispatched, waiting for you to tell us what to do. Oh, Rob needs some help tonight. He's teaching a message. Would you go down there and take care of that? For him, he, something's going on in his life. Oh, oh, something's going on in your life. Yeah, I need you to send, go down there and take care of that in Cumberland for me today, would you? Can you imagine what that's like? Someday our eyes are going to be open to the spiritual world, and I think our minds are going to be short-circuited. When we realize, you know, we read it, we catch a glimpse of it in Scripture where he opened his eyes to those who were for them, was so much greater than those who were against them. Someday our eyes are going to be open to the spiritual world on everything going on around us that we have no clue of right now. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait to, I, it, I think it's just going to short-circuit us. Can you imagine never taking your eyes off the Lord? Never missing what God has for you or wants you to do? Always being ready, waiting for him that next order? I have a fear that I'm going to miss what God has for me. I'm afraid sometimes that if I don't you know, do the right thing or I make the wrong decision, I'm going to miss this wonderful blessing that God has for me, and I'm the one that misses out on it. So in tune with the Lord that you never fall short. Unbelievable. You say, I can't do that. Look what he says next. He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Do you realize that a businessman would never leave 99 sheep and go look for the one that was lost? He would never make that decision. He'd consider it a cost of doing business. I've still got 99 left. Why would I leave 99 alone in danger so I can go find the one that was lost? The wolf could come and eat more of my 99 than the one that I'm missing. It's not a big deal. It's only one sheep. He would never do that unless he really loved the sheep unless he really cared for that sheep for all of the sheep unless all the sheep meant so much to him that if one strays he's going after it then he would be willing to leave the 99 and go find the one that he missed that was leaving that had, that had left that way only if he loved them 
Only if he really loved them would he go after that one lamb. This story demonstrates the value God places on individuals. He'll go after the one. You're the one. I'm the one. Jesus exhorts the disciples and us to reflect the same care with each other. If he values one of us so much, why would we not value each other the same way? Why would we think less of one or another? Remember, Jesus didn't want to offend the unbelieving tax collector. He even cared what he thought. Why wouldn't we care that have the same care with each other when it comes to dealing with each other? Because we're the sheep, right? He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. When it comes to dealing with each other, and the one sheep is a picture of someone who's gone astray. Perhaps they're off in sin. Perhaps it's the alcoholic who started drinking, or it's a drug addict who started using. Perhaps it's the one that's living a life of sin. Or Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, the way he puts it. When it comes to dealing with each other, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the first temptation is to despise one because it's only one. It's no big deal, it's only one. The next is to despise one because that one is so little. The next and perhaps the most dangerous form of the temptation is to despise one because that one has gone astray. They've gone back into their old life. They've fallen in sin, no big deal. We don't care, that's his problem. Jesus is instructing his disciples to love sinners, to go after them. And again, I can't resist quoting Spurgeon. He says this, Oh, how we ought to love sinners since Jesus loved us. And he died for us while we were yet sinners. We must care for drunkards while they still pass around the cup. Swearers, even while we hear them swear, We must not wait till we see some better thing in them, but feel an intense interest for them as what they are, straying and lost. You see, there's got to be a a heart that says as a believer, they're lost. I know the truth. I know the salvation. I know I've got to go after them and bring them the gospel. Certainly we can't force them, but we can share it with them. When the shepherd found the lost sheep, what did he do? He didn't beat it. He was happy. He didn't beat it for running away and doing those things. Yet so often that's what we do as Christians. We beat each other because we did something wrong or something stupid. What did the shepherd do? He wasn't angry or bitter over his hard work or lost time. Do you know I've been looking for you for three days? Do you know I've been, I've been worried about you for a month or for a year? I've been praying for you for four years. No, he just rejoiced. I found the one that was lost. I found him. I got him. Now the hundred are back together in. They're they're back together. His joy was overflowing. The one he loved, the one he went after, had been found. Do you realize this is the same character that God has towards you? God's love is individual. He loves you individually. He pursues you personally. He wants you. God's love is patient. You know, he waits for you. You say, well, man, he'd have to be patient to be putting up with me. I get it, but he's patient. He's patient. He waits for you. God's love is a seeking love. He is pursuing you. Do you know that? I can guarantee you tonight, as I talked about putting sin out of your life, the, the Holy Spirit ministered something to every one of you. There's something every, he said, this is what you need to take care of tonight. Do you know how I know that? Because his, he, he convicts the world of sin. That's what the scripture tells us he does. It's the Lord pursuing you saying, hey, I've got something better for you. You don't need to do that. You don't need to get angry anymore. 
You don't, need to, you don't need to respond that way. You don't need to be hateful. You don't need to be bitter. You don't need to do those things anymore. I can, yeah, I've got something for you. There's something you need to get rid of. And God's love is a rejoicing love. Tells us all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. How about when a believer turns back? How about when, when a believer moves beyond and, and matures just a little bit more? But when a, when a believer puts something worldly behind them and says, here I am, Lord. Here I am, send me, Father. Whatever you need, whatever you can do. You see, this message started out with Jesus and the disciples settling an argument. Hey, Lord, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who is it? Is it going to be me, Peter? Notice he didn't say it was Peter. Is it going to be me, Peter? Is it you? Is it James? If I was Jesus, I would have said, no, no, God, it's me. I'm the greatest in my kingdom, don't you think? I mean, wouldn't that be the obvious answer? I mean, they forgot who they were talking to. He doesn't say. Instead, he teaches them about humility. He grabs a little child and says, you're going to have to be one like these. You're going to have to be like this to even get in my kingdom. You're going to have to have the faith of a child to even get there. And if you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to treat other believers the right way. You're going to have to have this humility as little children before the Lord. May we as Christians not despise one another. May you love those who are lost. May you see their slipping away as an opportunity to share the gospel or to correct them. Next week, he's going to tell us how to deal with conflict between the believers. Churches. If you've been in church long enough, you know you're going to have a problem with someone else in the church. They're going to offend you. They're going to cause you to stumble. They're going to treat you wrongly. Next week, we're going to see the biblical application for what do I do. It's rather clear. It's rather simple. But it's going to require you, if you're the one offended, to be obedient and do what the Scripture says. So hopefully you'll come back next week as we continue this same message, this same passage next week. So let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> the disciples were having this argument about being great. And rather than rebuke them, you took a situation, an opportunity to teach them. Rather than judge them, you taught them humility. You provided for the tax that needed to be collected. You, made your, you, you showed them that it's okay not to offend somebody, that we don't always have to be right. Lord, many of these lessons are things that we need to learn. For often we'll stand and die on a hill of truth that we could have accomplished much more if we would have thought of the offending the other person. Lord, would you give us the wisdom to know when to stand on that hill? When to go all out and not back down? Would you also let us know when it's time to let it pass? Not worry about it. Not make a big deal of it. Lord, we need your discernment and your wisdom to know when those times are. And Lord, would you help us to become more humble? Would you teach us? May it truly be our hearts. Lord, when we ask a prayer like that, there's a part of me that says, ooh, I don't know if I want what that brings. But yet I know I want what you want for me. So may our heart be to allow you to work in us in whatever method is necessary to prepare us for eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.